So I know that we have some scientists in here. I'm not personally a scientist, but I understand the basics of gravity. One of the reasons I understand the basics of gravity, I like extreme sports, and part of a lot of extreme sports is trying to go airborne. And, uh, and so I've had a couple of moments in the air that were not the best. When I lived in England, I bought myself a mountain bike, and I remember one time uh, I was going down this massive hill. I told a little different story in the first service, but... Uh, so I have many stories about gravity not going well for me. But I was going down this massive hill and I saw partway down that there was a jump. Like you could hit a jump like halfway down this hill. I thought, wow, that'd be great. So I went back up the hill, came back down. I hit this jump. I didn't realize how big it was. And so my bike just began to tip and I went head over heels rolling down this hill And survived it, got up, but when I got home, I looked in the mirror and I had grass stains across my face. Sometimes gravity can be brutal. I don't know if you've ever experienced that for yourself, but also sometimes gravity can be a beautiful thing. If you think about gravity as the force on earth that pulls things towards the center of the earth. If you even think the moon being in tension with uh, the earth and how gravity actually affects tides and the oceans, or how gravity affects, if you think about a river flowing downhill and a massive waterfall, the reason that that water falls is gravity. You think about the tension in our solar system of the sun holding all these planets in tension because of gravity as they rotate around the sun. Gravity can be brutal, but it's also beautiful. And I think it's also a great picture of uh, people's relationship with God. Because I believe that everyone gravitates towards God at some point in their life. That we have this internal thing within us that is moving us towards God at different points of our lives. I think about when, even when I was young. I remember moments in my life where God was speaking to me and there was this gravitational pull towards people in need of Christ. If you think of just in life, God has designed us for a relationship with him So there should be this natural desire built in to move towards Christ. St. Augustine put it this way a long time ago. You made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Have you ever experienced that restlessness in the inside of you? That you feel like there's something that needs to happen or shift or change within you? I have. And I know that's often a pointing back towards finding this peace in God instead of restlessness in, our, in ourselves. I was on, as I was on Facebook the other day, I saw one of my friends post a quote from uh, Melissa Cox. And this is a reminder of just even the wrestling that happens within people that don't even seem like they know Christ. And she stated, I am homesick for a place I am not sure exists. One where my heart is full, my body loved, and my soul understood. And all of us have this deep longing and gravitational pull within us for something more. And so as we explore today, David, within the book of First and Second Samuel, you'll discover that David has this gravitational pull towards God like each and every one of us does. So let me give you a little background about David to help you kind of transition into this story of his life. We arrive in 
the nation of Israel at a point where the nation has been established in the land that God has promised them. And King Saul was positioned as the first king of Israel. Now King Saul, during his time as king, rebelled against God. And his bad character ruined his life. And so at one point, the prophet Samuel came to Saul and said, Saul, God is going to remove the kingdom from you because of your rebellion and because you weren't willing to follow him. And so God literally removes the spirit of God from Saul and sends him a troubling spirit. Now at the same time where Saul is fading as king, God is positioning a new king, this king named David. And so he tells Samuel, a prophet in Israel, to go to the house of Jesse and anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king of Israel. Now, Samuel arrives at the house of Jesse. The oldest son comes out and Jesse says, is this going to be the next king of Israel? And God speaks to Samuel and says these words in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height. For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel proceeds to go through the sons of Jesse to decide which one is going to be king. He does the first son, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh son. And God rejects them all as the next king of Israel. So he asked Jesse, do you have any more kids? Well, he got to seven. You'd think maybe we're done. But Jesse says, well, actually I have one more son. And he is out in the fields tending the sheep, but he's really of no significance. So why would you want to see him? Uh, But Samuel says, bring him to me. So they bring David to him. And David ultimately is anointed the next king of Israel. And the reason why is God sees who you really are. The Lord looks into your heart and sees what's going in on on the inside of you versus the outside. We're very great at putting on pretty faces. We walk around in our culture in general, we have a statement, hi, how are you doing? Good, good. And we move on and we think that everything is great. But in the inside, often many things are going on. But the Lord looked into the heart of David and he saw something different than all his brothers. And what he saw was a heart with a gravitational pull towards God. And I believe that this heart was formed when David was a shepherd. In those lonely hours, days, and months that he was tending to sheep by himself. He had time and space to commune with God and be drawn towards God. He wrote psalms and songs during those times. And also he saw God intervene, as we'll see later, in these times of silence, solitude, being away by himself. And in those times, I believe that God formed his heart in significant ways. Well, after being anointed as king, David is still not positioned as king. Saul is in the position as king, but David knows that he is going to be the next king. So there's this tension there. And as time goes on, Saul, the current king of Israel, has this troubling spirit And nothing can calm him down. And he's at angst and he's fearful and he's agitated. And people in his court recognize that the current King Saul needs some help. So they go looking for help for him and they come across David. And one of the servants of Saul said to David these words. One of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. 
Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. How would you like that recommendation? If somebody was looking to give you a job, and here's what somebody goes ahead and says about you. You know, talented musician, incredible warrior, good judgment, uses wisdom in situations, knows what they're doing, great looking. And on top of all this, the Lord is with this person. That's a great reputation to have. And the reality is that your reputation follows you. If you have a good reputation, people are going to talk about that. They might talk, not talk about it in public, but they are talking about you at some point. And if you have a bad reputation, that will follow you too. And wherever you go, your reputation follows you. I remember, um, for some of you older people, I remember I got the nickname from one of my uh, friend's parents, Eddie Haskell. And Eddie Haskell, if you know who that is, it was from a TV show. He was the prankster. He was the one that acted real polite in front of people, but behind the scenes was pulling practical jokes and all things. But my reputation preceded me before I showed up. And your reputation will follow you. And for David, his reputation paved a way for him to go into the courts of the king and play the harp for him and calm him down during seasons of fear and angst and trouble that Saul had. So now David moves out of obscurity a little bit and into the courts of Saul. But at this point, he'd travel back to be a shepherd and then back to the courts of Saul. So he's back and forth. And there was this probably tension in his life of being by himself in silence and solitude and worship, and then coming out and being in the presence of the king. And I believe this was also a point where his character was being forged and even his experience in the royal court was coming out. Well, over time, he does this back and forth thing. His two eldest brothers, David's two eldest brothers, are recruited into the army. And they go out to a battle with the Philistines, a surrounding nation that really didn't like Israel. And David is told by his dad one day, Jesse, to go out and bring food to his brothers who are at war. So David makes a trek over to the battlefield. He arrives at this battlefield with the food, and he comes across this interesting scenario. The two armies are not fighting one another, but they're standing there in a sense opposite of each other. And there's a giant named Goliath with the army of the Philistines. And every day, this army from the This giant from the army of the Philistines would come out and mock the Israelites and would challenge them and say, you find one warrior who's willing to come out and fight me. And if that warrior beats me, then I and my whole army will serve you. But if we beat you, you will become our servants. Not one person in the army was willing to step up to that challenge, including the king of Israel, King Saul. And so there's this tension on the battlefield every single day hearing this mocking voice. And David shows up, hears this, and begins to talk. Why won't anyone go fight him? Go take care of this guy. Come on, get rid of him. And like anything, news travels and David's words end up in the presence of King Saul. And so David is ushered into the presence of King Saul and, Saul, and David says this to Saul. 
Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Those are pretty bold words. And here's how Saul responds. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. If you remember the little recommendation that was made for David to come into Saul's courts, it's said in there that David was a man of war. That maybe he looked like a youth on the outside, but something had happened in the inside that he was ready and he was prepared. And so we continue to read on. And Saul, at this point, you know, David could have said, okay, Saul, you're not up for this. I'm going to just leave. But here's what David says to Saul. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club. I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw. And club it to death. I've done this with both lions, plural, and bears, plural. And I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. That is a bold statement. David is stepping out there with an incredible confidence. And many might even think that this would be prideful. But what I believe is that his faith that was formed in private now is affecting what is happening in public. He had been out tending sheep. This was not a show that he was putting on for people. He was simply acting on his position he was in. And when the sheep were attacked, he would attack back. And he was formed I don't know about you, but I have not wrestled with lions or bears and clubbed them to death. But this faith that was formed, this belief in God that when nobody else was coming to rescue him, God rescued him from the claws and the teeth of these animals will now rescue him from this giant Philistine. Because the faith that was formed in private has now become public. So what happens? David steps out. Saul allows him to go and confront this Philistine giant. He goes out with no armor on, simply with his sling, and he picks up a stone. It says he picked up some stones, and some people believe that, Phil, uh, that Goliath had brothers, and he was just saving some of the stones for his brothers, but we don't know. But he picks up the stone, puts it in his sling, slings it around, and with one shot, drops Goliath dead in his tracks. The armies of the Philistine begin to flee and the armies of Israel begin to attack. And now David, who is in obscurity, begins to rise into the spotlight. His star is rising and people begin to notice. Saul notices and Saul positions him in his military as a commander over many people. And every time that David goes out in battle, he wins. He wins. He just keeps winning and winning and winning. Everywhere he goes, everything he touches, he wins. And so what happens if you're winning all the time? Do people around you usually like that? Some do, but others become jealous. Others become threatened. And King Saul becomes threatened by David. I can't believe this guy's winning and winning and winning. 
And Saul begins to identify that David is going to be positioned as the next king. And so what does Saul do? He begins to try to kill David. At one instant when David is playing his harp for Saul, Saul takes his spear and throws him at it, throws it at him across the room. At a couple other occasions, Saul pursues David across Israel trying to corner and kill him. And on two occasions, Saul had the, or David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but passed on it and said, I'll let God take care of Saul. Have you ever been in a situation where you were doing the right thing, but in spite of that, you were getting persecuted? And I use the term persecuted kind of lightly because many of us have really not experienced persecuted like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ do across the world. But have you experienced harm when you try to do good? You try to love and you experience hate in return. You try to put out an olive branch and somebody cuts it off for you. Because David was in that position. And many people as believers or even in life life are in that position. And in the New Testament, Peter gives us this encouragement when we suffer for doing good. He states in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Now who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about the hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful manner. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Even if you suffer for doing good, recognize that God sees this, God knows it, and ultimately God is a just judge and he'll take care of it in his time and his way. But don't compromise your character. Don't get into those fights. Allow God to be the one that justifies you. Well, time continues on. And through a series of events, ultimately, King Saul is killed in battle along with his sons. After Saul is killed, David rises to the position as king of Israel. But there's a bit of a conflict in a divided kingdom for a moment that another group of people is trying to take power from the throne. And so David is in an internal battle within his kingdom, but ultimately he rises and takes over all of Israel. Now as he takes position as king, he continues to keep on winning and winning and winning. He expands the kingdom of Israel. He brings the capital to the city of Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant, a sign of God's presence to the city of Jerusalem. And everything is golden. David's star is truly risen. And he is at the peak of his power. And right at the peak of his power, we come across this verse in 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. This is the pivotal point in David's life. And David is in a position of power and glory and prestige and winning that most of us could only imagine. 
But something begins to happen. He begins to get comfortable. He begins to kind of step back and slow down. And when he's supposed to be out fighting without the other kings, is he out fighting? No. He's sitting at home. He sent out his general and his army to go do the dirty work, and now he's in a position where he can just be at home chilling. And one day as he's hanging out at home, someone where he's not supposed to be, doing what he's not supposed to be doing, he sees this beautiful woman bathing as he looks down from his palace roof. And he sees this woman and talks to her, his servants and says, hey, who's, who's this beautiful woman that I see? And they tell that David that this is Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Now Uriah is one of the people in David's army, but he's not some obscure guy. He's actually one of David's 30 mighty men. So think about the special forces of the military, and David was their general. He knew Uriah. He most likely fought side by side with Uriah. He probably had moments in the trenches with Uriah. And so when they told, his servants told David that this is Uriah's wife Bathsheba, he knew exactly who they were talking about. But did that stop David from going and taking this woman? No. He sent his servants and they brought Bathsheba back to his palace where he slept with her. And he thought it was just all happening underneath the radar. Everybody's off at war. Nobody's going to know any better. And he had elevated himself to a position that was above the law, above accountability. And he began to get himself in trouble. But instead of allowing the sin to be buried, Bathsheba actually got pregnant. And so now David's scrambling to cover up his sin even more. So he sends for Uriah and brings him back, gets him drunk and tries to make him sleep with his own wife, but Uriah won't do it. Uriah is a man of integrity, of character, and it's a a very interesting parallel if you do a little study of these two gentlemen's life at that point in their life. Here Uriah is so faithful to the king, so faithful to the army that he would come home and not even sleep with his own wife, and here's David stealing his wife while he is gone. So David can't get him to do this, so ultimately he sends a letter with Uriah back to Joab to basically have him killed in battle to bury David's sin even a little deeper. But the reality is that sin done in private has public consequences. That we don't get away with anything. And so God sends a prophet named Nathan to David. The prophet Nathan through elaborate story, tells David that God knows what you've done. And now there's going to be consequences for your actions. So David recognizes his own sinfulness and he turns back to God in repentance and brokenness. And the reality is that all of us wander from God. And all of us need to return to God again and again and again. There's this gravitational pull in our life towards God. But also there's this wandering away from God that happens in each and every one of our lives. Every single believer in Christ and every single person on this 
planet has those tensions happening within them. None of us is sin-free, and each one of us has our own battles that can pull us away from God and his plans for our life. And when David is confronted, he returns back to God. He could have kept running the other direction, but he said, I'm going to turn back to God. The Bible uses the word repentance, which means that you were going and you were doing wrong, and you turn a 180 degrees, and you turn back to God, and you turn away from your sinful practices. And David returned again and again. But the reality is that God forgave him. God generously forgave David for all his sin. But sin still has consequences. And forgiveness can remove those eternal consequences, but it doesn't change present circumstances. For David, the child that was in Bathsheba died. A sword came to his household. There became this internal turmoil with his children and with people wanting to steal the throne from him. And again and again through the second half of David's life, he was faced with many consequences for his sin. And this wasn't the only time he sinned. He did other things that brought consequences on both his life and the nation of Israel. But again and again, God forgave him. But the consequences of his sin remained. If you ask God to forgive you, and you're currently serving a sentence in jail, does that mean that the door's open and you are set free to go home? No. You're going to still have to serve out that term in jail. If you ask for forgiveness from God for relational struggles with your spouse, does that mean that trust is instantly rebuilt and everything is perfect? No. It can take hard work to rebuild that. We still have to face our present circumstances, even knowing that we have been forgiven by God. And David had to face this again and again and again. So as we look at David's life, we can see probably ourselves in there. Maybe you're in that point in time in David's life, the harp playing in the fields with the sheep, drawing close to God, this heart that's just connected with God. Or you might be over here on the other side <laughs> that you've peaked and you've become sloppy and messy and, and at one time you had that and now you don't and you've wandered away and you've inflicted yourself with pain and people around you with pain. Or maybe you're just somewhere in the middle. But in the midst of all this, we are going to make decisions of what direction we're going. And first, I believe we need to make a decision to gravitate towards God. That we can make a decision to draw back in. We can also decide to deal with our sin and face the consequences of our sin. This is difficult. It's challenging, but I believe that this is what God wants each and every one of us to do. If it's a private sin between you and God, deal with that. If it's something relationally, you got to take care of that. And I believe as we deal with that and we deal with the consequences of our sin, God is going to meet with us in the midst of that. And then finally, when you wander, keep coming back. Keep coming back. David is called a man after God's own heart 
And I believe that last point is why. Because in spite of his sinful tendencies, in spite of his stumbling around, he just kept coming back. And for many of us, when we sin, we want to run away from God. We want to go hide in the darkness. We want nothing to do with Christians or other people because we have the shame, we have this guilt. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, we just try to hide. But instead of doing that, we need to gravitate back towards God. we got to keep coming back when we mess up. And I believe we will be embraced with open arms. And if you call yourself a follower of Christ here, I'd encourage you that that's the way we need to act with people. If we watch somebody wander, instead of judging and condemning when they come back, why not love them, embrace them, and welcome them like the prodigal son was welcomed by the father in that story, if you know it. And if there's people in the church that are bitter and angry, like the older son in that prodigal son story, we need to be like the father too and say, man, come back. Come back to God. Deal with your sin and see how God intervenes. David is an incredible example of somebody who had this gravitational pull towards God. And his star rose and even when it began to fall, he continued to return again and again to God in the midst of that brokenness. Today as we finish up, we have an opportunity to celebrate communion together. And communion is an incredible picture of this gravitational pull that God has made towards us. It's easy to think that Christianity is about us trying to become better. And it's not. Left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. And so Jesus came as a savior for us to save us from ourselves, from our sin, to bring reconciliation, a restored relationship between God and humankind. And here at Durwood Alliance Church, we celebrate what's called open communion. If you are not living in rebellion to God, if you've you've asked for forgiveness and repenting, you've turned back to God and you're gravitating towards God, or even if you're just coming back this morning, we'd invite you to come to the table. Come to the table and celebrate that it was his body that was broken for us. It was his blood that was poured out for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made whole and ultimately allow that to spread to the rest of our lives. So as we come this morning, I'd encourage you to take a moment to just evaluate where you're at. Where's that gravitational pull? Are you pulling into God? Are you wandering away? And wherever you're at, Just simply turn back to God and experience his forgiveness, wholeness, and healing. And then simply come and celebrate communion with us. Also, how we do it is you come down the center aisle. We'll have two spots set up for you to take communion. There's some gluten-free over on this side. And you take the piece of bread and dip it into the cup and then take that. So let's pray and then afterwards feel free to come and take communion. Father God, You are an incredible God. And as I look at David's life, I'm reminded of my own. There have been times and seasons for me that there's been this gravitational pull that I felt so close to you, God. And there's been other seasons where I've wandered and sometimes just even apathetically in the middle. 
But Father, I'm reminded this morning that a heart for you returns to you and has this gravitational pull towards you. And even when we mess up and sin, we deal with that and the consequences and we keep returning, we keep coming back. And Father, we all need your forgiveness. None of us is better than another. And even communion is a reminder that each one of us is like a beggar coming to your table, simply trying to find fresh bread, fresh forgiveness, fresh healing, fresh wholeness. And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, may you remind us of your love, your grace and mercy for people that are in need of a savior. And all of us are those people. So we simply offer this time and space to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to come forward and take communion as you're ready.